Heterodorks. 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 Hey, turfs and trannies. You are listening to Heterodorks. I am your co-host, Nina Paley. And I am your other co-host, Corinna Cohn. And we have a guest heterodork with us today. He is called Dr. William Malone, but his friends call him Will. Welcome to Heterodorks. Thank you. Glad to be here. And you are, what is your specialty? So I, I'm an adolescent and um, adult endocrinologist, uh, which basically means uh, we, uh, we help folks who have hormone levels that are out of the normal range, either too high or too low. And uh, basically what we do is we help, we help them get those hormone levels as back close to normal as possible. That's the best way to describe it. Uh, hormones, are those important for anything? Uh, a few things. Yeah. All right. I've been champing at the bit for a year, more than a year, mm -hmm. to sure. ask an endocrinologist yeah. questions. My first question is, hormones for bone health. I keep sure. hearing that people need, especially people who have removed their gonads or whose gonads are not functioning, that they need exogenous hormones for bone health. Why? How does that work? So estrogen and testosterone, and it's interesting for both men and women, males and females, it looks like the conversion of either estrogen directly or the conversion of testosterone to estrogen um, at the level of the bone has an important role in stimulating the uh, cells in the skeleton on the surface of the bone that degrade old bone. So it's fascinating. Our skeleton, essentially, our body degrades old bone and replaces it with new bone on a continuous basis. It's a fairly slow process, but this is going on throughout our entire lifetime. Between, uh, let's say, the ages of 10 and 30, the cells that make new bone are putting more new bone down then the cells that degrade old bone are chewing old bone up. And so the net result of that is that the bone density increases, and it increases quite dramatically um, between the age of 10 and 30. And then there's a plateau. And then at about probably 35 or so, the cells that degrade bone, that chew up old skeleton, they continue to work as fast as they have always worked but the bones that or the cells that put down new bone slow down. And so after the age of 35, there's a continuous decline in bone density. And so the key here for bone health is reaching a, a very high peak or an adequate peak bone density at age 30, because everyone after the age of 30 is basically losing bone density at a fairly steady rate of, let's say, 1% to 2% per year. Now, hormones play an integral role in that ballet of degradation and rebuilding um, throughout our lifetime. And without uh, estrogen working at the surface of the bone in particular, the cells, they're called osteoblasts, B for builders, the osteoblasts have a really hard time. Um, and the osteoclasts, the C for chewing up old bone, 
they just keep doing their deal. They just chewing up bone, but the osteoblasts are not able to keep up. So that's a long way of saying that essentially there's, there's a very predictable pattern of increasing and then decreasing bone density over the course of the lifespan. This is why at age 50, for example, with menopause, when estrogen levels essentially go to zero, there's a rapid phase of bone loss because those cells that build bone essentially have lost the hormonal signal to, to build new bone. And are those hormonal signals the only way? Like, I mean, lots of women go through natural menopause and they don't instantly get osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. One friend of mine has said that she had a radical hysterectomy, so her ovaries are gone. Mm -hmm. And she's doing other things to maintain bone health, and she gets checked, and she says that her bones are good. So what what's going on? The bottom line is, if at age 30, you built a lot of bone density, um, you're going to lose bone density at the same rate as everybody else. So there's going to be a, a predictable rate of bone loss, and then there's going to be a, an accelerated phase um, around menopause. Um, but a, unless someone is very physically active, you know, lifting, even in the even in that situation, you know, perhaps someone who's lifting weights heavily, you know, over the age of fifty, might slow the natural rate of uh, decline. But um, if you track almost everyone's bone density over time, it's going to go down. The issue is if you've got enough to start with, you know, you can make it till 80 or 90 and still have adequate bone where you're not breaking your bones if you fall over. But if you didn't reach a peak bone mass that was very high and there are some genetic factors and perhaps you lose bone density at a slightly faster rate, and let's say you had a hysterectomy at age 45, ovaries removed five years earlier than traditional menopause, all of those factors are going to contribute to you crossing over that osteoporosis line sooner than later. So eventually, if you live long enough, most people are going to have thinning, you know, osteopenia, thin bones or osteoporosis, kind of severely thin bones and risk of fracture. It's a big problem, especially because we're living longer. What if uh, hypothetically you had an orchiectomy when you were 19 years old? Would that, would that affect your bone density? Yes. So any hormonal interruption is going to impact uh, before the age of 30, regardless of cause or hormone, is going to impact the trajectory of bone density. So now, um, and there's a lot of unknowns. Um, so if hormones get replaced, then you would theoretically expect um so you would theoretically expect that individual's bone density to continue to climb to their genetic peak at age 30 and then what you're going to expect is um, essentially a kind of a genetically predetermined drop off in bone density what's interesting is that it does not take much estrogen or testosterone to maintain bone density uh, so for example, if a, a woman comes in and she's postmenopausal, um, you know, age 50 and having a lot of symptoms, we can offer hormone replacement in the form of estrogen. And, and if she has a uterus, the progesterone, but we don't give dosages that approximate premenopausal levels. So we only have to give a percentage of the premenopausal amount of hormone 
to keep, to get the effects on the bones. So another long way of saying, essentially, you need some, you need some hormone, but the system seems to be built to be able to deal with some deprivation. Some. Some, yes. And then, so, so basically, and there are, there are ways. So for example, they've studied this. So like an estrogen patch, for example, comes in different forms. It's bioidentical estradiol and it's the safest way to take estrogen actually, because oral estrogen gets absorbed in the gut, in the intestinal tract, and then it goes into the bloodstream, into the portal vein system, and then it passes into the liver. And all the medications we take by mouth do this. Estrogen immediately increases the amount of clotting factors that the liver makes. And so one of the main risk factors for oral estrogen is blood clots. If we can, especially if we're not giving estrogen in in uh, birth control dosages, which are significantly higher than what ovaries would normally make. It's a significantly higher amount of estrogen. And the point of that is to shut off the pituitary gland so that ovarian cycling and egg production stops. Now, with hormone replacement, though, we don't need nearly to get the positive effects on bone. And so we can give that by a patch and the patch, because it is absorbed through the skin, goes into the blood and does not need to pass through the portal vein system through the liver, it doesn't stimulate those clotting factors. So basically a low dose of estrogen by patch in the later years has a very nice impact on a positive impact on bone density. This is kind of bread and butter endocrine replacement strategy for older women. How is bone density tested? So the most standard way is, a, is it's basically a fancy x-ray. It's a fancy x-ray of um, different sites of the skeleton, the hips, uh, the femur bone, the spine, and sometimes the forearm. So basically these are standardized sites. There's a fancy x-ray done that measures the amount of radiation that passes through the bone. And uh, based on that, you, you get a score, you get a, uh, it can calculate your bone density. And then the machine knows what quote unquote normal bone density is. And then the machine compares you to peak bone mass of a man or a woman at age 30. And then, you know, osteoporosis is defined as having a bone density. That's two and a half standard deviations below peak bone mass at age 30, which is quite low. So it means essentially compared to a cohort of 30 year old women, your bone density would be in the lowest two and a half percent of that, of those hundred people, for example. Um, and that classifies as a diagnosis of osteoporosis, which carries an increased risk of fracture. And then that triggers interventions, um, usually pharmacologic interventions, in addition to, you know, calcium, vitamin D, et cetera. But once the bone density gets low like that, the risk of fracture, especially later in life is so high and the risk of falls goes up because we're not great at maintaining mobility. You know, in this, if you compare Americans to folks in Okinawa who live a long time, their rate of hip fractures are a lot lower. They don't fall as often. It's speculated because this is because they're throughout their lifetime, they're getting up and down from the floor uh, many times during the day, um, sitting on the floor. So their balance is better, their mobility is better, et cetera, et cetera. So, but as we get older and more likely to fall, our nervous system is less efficient. Um, the falls get ugly for older people. They don't brace. They just kind of fall over 
almost unimpeded. It's really kind of shocking to witness. And you can understand when you see that once or twice, why someone could seriously injure themselves with a fall. So I'm sure that gender clinics regularly, or at least once test their patients' bone densities, especially if they're administering puberty blockers. Yeah. You know, I've never worked in a gender clinic, so I can't, I can't say for sure. Uh, but so it, it's a bit of speculation, but and I'm not sure if a formal study has been done. So there have been formal studies done on, for example, how many kids in gender clinics are offered uh, fertility preserving things and options and interventions. And it's shockingly low. It's like single digit numbers who are offered. Now, these were some older studies, and I think there's more attention paid to it now. But I would say in general, from secondhand knowledge, bone density outside of clinical trials is not on gender clinics' minds when they are prescribing puberty blockers. It may be on some, um, so I, I can't say for sure with all. One of the critiques, and it's easy for me to sit and critique, one of the critiques of adult that adult adolescent and adult endocrinologists have towards pediatric endocrinologists is they start a bunch of stuff and then they don't see the, the consequences of it because when the kid hits age 18, they're off to the adult endocrinologist. So, you know, it's, it's going to be unlikely for there to be fractures, except in serious cases, severe cases, rare cases in kids who are on puberty blockers. The issue is, you know, down the line, if their peak bone mass accrual is interrupted at that critical time, you know, what happens after age 30? And that, that's an unknown, which as you both know, is, is a, the major significant issue with, with all of the evidence in the gender medicine space is that it's low quality and kind of low quality sounds insulting, but that's, you know, it's a research term. It basically means you can't draw definitive conclusions from the evidence from the studies that have been done because of the way that they've been done. They've not been controlled for, you have, it's called a risk of bias. And so um, essentially, the results that you get, you can't be certain that those results actually reflect real world reality. Um, and so in an environment like that, you have a tremendous, you have a tremendous number of unknowns. And it's just kind of common knowledge in medicine that when there's unknowns, uh, there's significant risk of harm. And so that's, that's been one of my main concerns and one of the reasons that, that I started uh, speaking up about this stuff. We've got so many of these young people now who are starting puberty blockers at age 10 or 11 or 12, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. even a little bit older. Yeah. And the idea is that puberty is like a pause button and that is supposed to give them a chance to see if they take to transition or if they would change their minds, but some people do change their minds. So if somebody has been on puberty blockers through the most of the stages of adolescence and maybe cross-sex hormones, if they reach adulthood and they start taking hormones that are more mm -hmm. congruent with their biological sex mm -hmm. uh, after an orchiectomy or a hysterectomy, is there a play button again? 
can they continue along the uh, pubertal development? Yeah, so it's a, I mean, it's it's a really um, highly relevant and question that is not easy to answer. You know, getting back to what I said before, there's so much unknown. So essentially, I think puberty is best thought of as not just a physical changes, but as kind of a, a psychosocial event as well. Puberty is a group event, right, that you go through with your peers that involves not only physical changes, but um, psychosocial changes. So there's brain development and then the, you know, the social skills uh, uh, development that and intelligence development, you know, IQ, et cetera, that's happening at the same time as the body changes and all of this is happening together. And so I think it's very reasonable to be concerned about the psychosocial development of individuals who are uh, removed from their peer group in terms of puberty. And so if, if a kid uh, were to change their mind and some puberty blockers for a couple of years and then stops, I, I think, you know, medicine works in probabilities, right? So I think there's a high probability that that kid will restart the physical stages of puberty. It might take a year or two because these puberty blockers last a tremendous amount of time. Their effects last months beyond the last dose of the puberty blocker. So it might take six or 12 months, but I do think, and I think most endocrinologists would agree with me that the physical aspects of puberty would, would likely start up again, but no one really understands the psychosocial impacts of quote unquote missing puberty, right? So now you're going through puberty at age, let's say age 16 or 17 or later when your peers went through at, you know, 12, 13, 14, or at least started puberty. So the, the psychosocial impact of that is, is uh, completely, I would say completely unknown. So it's possible that if you were on puberty blockers starting at 10 and you went off them at say 15, that you'd be in some respects having a, a body that's more typical of a 10 or 11 or 12 year old mm -hmm. at age 15. And that, yeah. that maybe you would finish your normal pubertal development in your early twenties instead. Yeah. And, and exactly. And no one knows the, the impact of that. So yes, you, so chronologically that person would be 15 years old, but, but, um, otherwise age 10. And the questions you're asking and the conversation we're having is exactly what should be occurring inside of medical schools, medical societies, doctor's offices, amongst colleagues, and in examination rooms with patients. And in the three years or so, I guess four years now that I've been focused on this topic, there's been a tremendous absence of these types of discussions. It's been extremely disappointing for me to see, especially the medical societies, how they've, I think, abdicated their, their duty and their obligation to facilitate conversations, important conversations. You know, you can see the consequence of that. There's really two consequences. One, you know, we're seeing harm being done. And the second is, at least in the United States, now the courts are being, you know, the legislatures and courts are being forced to platform these discussions because I think it's 
unfortunately necessary. It's not ideal. Courtrooms and state houses are not the best place to have delicate, intellectual, nuanced conversations about about medicine. But because the medical societies have failed to facilitate these conversations in the usual places, there's almost, there's no other option. And it's really just been baffling for me to witness. One thing that is starting to make a little bit of sense to me listening to you talk, uh, Dr. Malone, is that when you have an organization like Planned Parenthood, who is prescribing estrogen or testosterone to young people under 30 or under 25 or under 21 that are doing so only on an informed consent basis, that maybe the three hours of required training that they have before they can write these prescriptions maybe should be more than three hours, maybe four or five hours of training. It raises a whole host of issues. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the biggest, the big picture is it's difficult to conceptualize how a distressed individual in that setting, let alone even in a, you know, let's say a, you know, traditional quote unquote, traditional pediatric endocrinologist office, how a young person can actually provide informed consent for what's about to be done to them. It's still, you know, this was one of many concerns that I had. So it was early 2018 when the Endocrine Society rolled out their um, updated uh, guidelines for uh, gender dysphoria for children, adolescents, and adults. And that was one of the concerns is that, okay, if we follow this, this protocols, essentially the message, you know, so I've told the story before, you might've heard it. I was, you know, at the Endocrine Society early 2018. And, you know, this is the national meeting, international meeting. There are thousands of endocrinologists and they present, you know, important new developments, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the guidelines get rolled out and it's clear from the protocol and the guidelines, the puberty blockers at Tanner stage two, which is going to be early, uh, early puberty. So this could be age nine, 10, 11, um, followed by cross-sex hormones. So that sequence of events was going to leave uh, those kids essentially chemically sterilized. And, and so this immediately, you know, brought up a number of questions. Um, um, the first was, you know, what was the evidence for this dramatic intervention, uh, you know, to, uh, to take, uh, someone's future fertility at a young age, there has to be, there has to be, I mean, that has to raise enormous ethical concerns. Uh, um, you know, that only occurs now in, in dire medical situations where chemotherapy, for example, has to be administered in an effort to save a young person's life. So, and, and there we have a, you know, a clearly diagnosable condition and we know the outcomes and what happens if we don't intervene. And, and it's, it's not a pleasant thing to, I've never done it, but it's not a pleasant thing to, um, it would not be a pleasant thing to administer medications, even in that scenario, in an effort to save a child's life, knowing that they're potentially going to be infertile, but some are sterilized, but um, you know, sometimes you, you're forced to. So in the absence of that um, scenario, it, it was baffling to me. Uh, so they presented essentially low quality evidence. They came to a conclusion that interventions uh, uh, should be uh, offered if a patient gets referred from a mental health professional recommending interventions, medical interventions. 
that lead to sterility and and likely you know future sexual dysfunction and so no clear evidence of uh, psychological benefit long term uh, and of course the ethical issue that you're raising which is how does a young person in particular uh, consent actually give informed consent when in all likelihood the information being provided to them is not accurate well it just doesn't sound like anybody who knows what's going on should be enthusiastic about this sort of intervention. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, when you look at everything in its totality, it's very, very problematic. And um, it's difficult to make a case for interventions, certainly in a young population, certainly under age 25 before the age of, of full brain maturity. There are lots of interventions that are done uh, with low quality evidence, uh, but I can't think of a, a corollary where there's low quality evidence guiding interventions that cause infertility and sexual dysfunction. And, you know, it raises all sorts of questions as to how has this happened? How have we arrived at a place where the usual safeguards, especially for young people, have been cast aside. It's not an easy question to answer. Uh, you know, the uh, corollary, so traditional training through medical school is, for example, there are some uh, women who will present to um, gynecologists requesting hysterectomies under the age of 25, so 19, 20, 21, so their age of consent. The data, the last I reviewed this, shows that you know, of every 10 women who present under the age of 25, about three will catastrophically regret the decision to have a hysterectomy at that young age. And because the doctors can't tell who those three are going to be, they don't, haven't historically provided hysterectomies to women under the age of 25, unless there's a, a real serious indication because of this regret factor and the fact that three people of those 10 who cannot be identified, they're all equally enthusiastic about the hysterectomy. There's no predictive factor. And so because you can't tell out of, out of respect for those three individuals of those 10 who you can't identify and who will suffer greatly as a consequence of this intervention at a future date, we used to do everything we can to avoid that intervention. And, and obviously there are parallels to gender dysphoric youth and the numbers who persist and desist and really a clinical inability to determine who will persist and who will not. And so, you know, how did we end up at a place where you have one set of rules guiding most decision-making and then another set in the gender space? It's really, it's really incredible to witness. Except that it's way more than three out of 10 that desist without, well. You're right. Well, we don't know, actually. I, well, I thought with, with no interventions, right? I thought that there were studies that showed that with no interventions, gender dysphoric youth, like 80% re desisted so or resolved with yeah. no interventions. So of the classic, you know, early onset, childhood onset gender dysphoria, there's like 11 studies and, uh, of this, and you know, the rates of desistance range from 65 to 98%. And nobody knows when, why, or how 
um, these kids desist. So some before puberty, some during puberty, some after. This information has been, those who promote early intervention uh, significantly tried to discredit these studies by saying that most of them were done at a time when the diagnostic criteria was softer and therefore lots of kids who had subclinical gender dysphoria essentially who don't meet current criteria were cast into the lot here. And so now only kids with severe gender dysphoria are you know, making it to gender clinics and therefore the assistance rates are expected to be much lower, et cetera, et cetera. Ken Zucker looked at that argument and tore it to pieces and beautiful to read. Uh, so, so it doesn't, even when you reanalyze with stricter criteria, you're still looking at 60 to 70% desistance at some point in time. And I consider this to be a bit of, you know, I call it gender folklore, where the gender clinicians pretend that they have some magical ability to predict who will persist in their dysphoria and who will desist. This has been the case all the way along. So a bunch of stuff gets said and I'm like, huh, that sounds weird. I'm like, all right, well, it's a medical society. Okay. It's a pediatric endocrinologist. You know, they went through the same training process that I did. It's still a little weird. I'm going to go look at it for myself. That was the three hours of training. Yeah. And so, and so I go and I look at it for myself and I'm like, where, where's the evidence for this? Where's the evidence? And you can't find it. It's not there. And then you start to say, there's no evidence here for, to support this statement. And then immediately you get, you get called names and told you don't know what you're talking about and that you don't have any standing to speak and all sorts of things to suppress what happens in every other area of medicine, which is usually polite professional fighting. And so when there's low quality evidence, what's supposed to happen is you have a bunch of different camps. So one camp thinks you got to do it this way. And this bunch of doctors think they're the smartest and the best. And they're like, no, you got to do it this way. And, and, and what they do is they, they fight with each other and they, they use the traditional tools to fight. So they, they write letters to the editor. They critique each other's um, articles. They present together at conferences and they say, well, we think the data is more consistent with this theory of origin of this. And therefore we think the treatment should be this. And then the opposition gets up and says, no, you're wrong and you're being funded by big pharma. And so no one here should trust you, but this is all done within the confines. This is how the process is supposed to happen. So there's lots of rock throwing that goes on. Your position's weak. You did your analysis wrong. You need to go back and do stats 101. It's, it's all like, this is just part of the process. And then through that process, the truth eventually filters to the top. And the reason that this is so important is that the consequences of being wrong are profound. We're trying, right? So we're supposed to, at least, we're trying to reduce people's suffering and distress. And so the last thing we want to do is the opposite of that. And so a fairly decent process has been put together. The foundation is the scientific method to try to figure out what the best treatments are that have the highest likelihood of reducing people's suffering. But that process has been hijacked. There is no dialogue occurring where it should. It's occurring now on a small scale inside state houses and courtrooms, but it is for the most part, not occurring at medical society meetings. It's occurring to in the last four years. So I'm part of a group 
of clinicians, a collaboration, and you know we've been working with each other and um, writing papers and letters to the editor, trying to open this dialogue. And we've had some success. Uh, we've been we've been shut out um, in other in some avenues, and some journals won't publish anything that we uh, that we submit, but some journals will. And so there's finally some debate is occurring. But the consequence of that debate not occurring is the truth is not being filtered to the top. So the process is corrupted. So truthful conversation is not occurring. And the consequence is harm to patients, real harm. That's in the United States that that's happening, or is that global? So it, it was globally. And in, in the last three to four years, um, so Sweden, Finland, because they have nationalized health systems, UK, because they have nationalized systems, it's harder to, for things to get in the way. It's harder for activists and big pharma, quote unquote, and other interests and physicians' egos to corrupt the process because they have centralized data. Uh, because they have mandates to only offer interventions that have been proven to be beneficial, et cetera. And so it's easier to nationalize the conversation. Hmm. And so as a consequence of that, in Finland and Sweden and the UK, they've done reviews of the evidence. It's low quality evidence in a, in a vulnerable population who likely cannot give consent. They've said it without saying it. They've said, well, the framework for looking at Gender dysphoria is important here because if you look at gender dysphoria as a psychosocial development, right? So they don't come out and say like, oh, there's no proof. There's no evidence of innate gender identity. They'll say, well, this is a psychosocial phenomenon. And so we're going to use traditional psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy or et cetera, et cetera, or evidence-based suicide prevention protocols. And we're going to treat comorbid conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So they're working under a framework, a correct framework that uh, there is no, no one can, no one has proven the existence of an, an innate gender identity. And so you're, you're looking essentially at somatic interventions for a psych psychologically distressed individual. And then all the decision-making from within that framework starts to make more sense. And this was the traditional way of looking at gender dysphoria. So the United States and our medical societies uh, in particular have embraced this, this concept of an innate, immutable gender identity that is, I refer to it as kind of metaphysical. It's non-falsifiable, right? It's, it's a, then based on that framework, though, of an innate gender identity, the thought process from the medical societies is, well, the only compassionate thing to do is to offer medical interventions and to work to make them safer. So the old framework was psychosocial factors leading to development of gender dysphoria, uh, psychological support of writing a variety of methods, even the Dutch, the Dutch protocol, right? So the, the, the originators of, of pediatric interventions were very clear in their protocol. If family comes and says with a male child and says, so I have a girl with a penis. They don't, they say, no, no, you have a boy who wants to be a girl. And we're going to try to see if we can get him and you comfortable with a gender non-conforming child. And if that doesn't happen, you know, at a certain age, if you all are in agreement, we'll offer medical interventions. It was based on the correct understanding of, 
of the psychosocial basis of the development of gender dysphoria. Uh, but the U.S. medical system has embraced uh, gender, this concept of innate gender identity, despite no evidence of it being anything that can be actually described in a way that makes medical sense. And it, you know, it fails basic proofs of logic and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but within that framework, you're not allowed to offer psychotherapy because you're trying to change something innate about somebody. And so that's where the major division has happened and where a shift of understanding needs to occur. Well, uh, there's some people who are considering now after starting transition path as teenagers, they're hitting their early or their their mid 20s and they're starting to decide that they want to not be trans anymore and there are a couple of things that are related to that one is that the gender clinics that help transition them really don't have any services to help them feel more comfortable in their native natal sex and so they tell them to go someplace else or they say they they can't help or the other effect is that for some of these people who want to desist or detransition, that they no longer have any trust or faith in the system, that, that, that yeah. they'll get good guidance. Yep. So some people are choosing to stop HRT completely. Some are trying to see if they can survive without having any sort of exogenous hormones in their system. So I'm wondering if somebody is out there listening and they decide they just want to stop taking any form of HRT, whether they're male or female, what would be some of the effects of immediately seizing HRT and what would be some of the long-term effects? Got to make sure that anyone listening knows that I can't right. give advice in their situation, So I, but I can talk in generalities. I mean, I think in general... You want to do things under the supervision of a physician who you trust and who has experience, especially when it comes to hormones. So in general, it makes sense to gradually increase and slowly decrease unless there's a really pressing reason to stop. So if somebody develops a blood clot, for example, and it's attributable to a, a hormone, well, it makes sense in that situation to stop quickly and right away. Otherwise, if there's not a, an immediate urgency, then generally a gradual decline, because these hormones, they, they work on the DNA of our cells, right? You know, you know hormone, something that doesn't require a, a receptor on the surface of a cell, it can cross over and then bind directly to our DNA. And then it alters the behavior of that cell. So when you're talking about changing the behavior of cells, it just makes common sense to do those things gradually. And, you know, we generally do that in other, whenever we're introducing a medication, if it's not an urgent situation, we start at a one quarter or half dose and then usually increase. And then there are some situations where we do have to decrease non-hormonal medications. We have to, you know, anything that works on the brain, for example, you know, has psychological or, you know, neurological impacts. Um, some of these things we have to wean slowly down. So it makes sense to me, of course, in an ideal situation, you're working with a clinician who has your best interests at heart, who you trust in terms of their training and knowledge, and then in general, likely is going to recommend 
gradual changes and not abrupt ones. There's such thing as steroid withdrawal. So testosterone is a steroid. There are lots of, lots of different steroids. So testosterone is a steroid, whether it's a corticosteroid or a, um, uh, a sex steroid. So, you know, prednisone, if, if someone's taking prednisone at a high dose for a period of time, and then they suddenly stop, they can have issues with adrenal insufficiency and steroid withdrawal, which is unpleasant. This is well documented for testosterone, for example. So you can go into steroid withdrawal that will make you feel lousy. In general, gradual changes are best. Now, gradual doesn't mean it doesn't have to be a year. It can be several weeks. It could be six weeks where one hormone goes down and then when that's off, the other one goes up. That kind of makes sense to me. You know, it's interesting. I think part of the reason this is happening, so the, the clinicians who are prescribing hormones in the ones that I've spoken to, it's a, it's a mix. So number one, they, they have uncritically accepted a lot of the false information out there about the psychological benefits, benefits of these interventions. So they haven't critically looked at the data. They do think they're, they're helping from a psychological standpoint, and that helps quell their concerns about side effects. Um, the second is they're operating under this assumption of an innate gender identity. And therefore, when somebody comes back and says, hey, this is a mistake, there was something going on, I had this trauma, I had this, uh, whatever it may be, and uh, now that I've dealt with that, and I'm a little older, my gender dysphoria is resolved, and I don't want to take these drugs anymore. That's going to shock that clinician who's operating under this innate gender identity paradigm. And so how, how does that person function? How does that person continue without being bothered by what they're doing with the very next patient? And so, you know, it's human nature. You don't want to face things that make you uncomfortable. And so that physician it, it may not feel comfortable literally because of the conflict that it causes in that practice and with, uh, with how they're practicing. I have some more unrelated questions or sure. they're related, but not related to. No, I okay. hope I can answer oh, them. Yeah. Is, is this the time Nina that you start talking about your favorite operating system again, Unix? <laughs> I told you no computer questions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So historically Unix uh, oh, I told you, Nina. Thing. No computer questions. <laughs> well, I'm actually, uh, it's GNU Linux. It's, it's GNU Unix. Anyway, GNU Unix. Okay. GNU Unix. So my understanding is that boys were castrated for various reasons and then had careers as Unix. There was a, there's a record of Korean imperial court Unix, where they lived a really long time, apparently. They had longer lifespans than intact men. But just in general, there was there was no hormone replacement historically mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. people were Unix. Are there reports of brittle bones of Unix? That's a great question. I I don't know is the short answer. So um, you know, certainly in a modern medical setting. Let's say there's, you know, a testicular injury or there's, there's some boys who have, uh, both testes are undescended and immature. And so they're in the inguinal canal it's called. And so they don't migrate down from the abdo abdomen where they start, um, into the, uh, where they should end in the, 
scrotal sac there. So, uh, and, and in that case, if they're immature and uh, unformed, uh, and there's an increased risk of cancer when the testes don't migrate to, to um, outside the body, outside the abdominal cavity, uh, an abdominal wall. Increased risk of what kind of cancer? Testicular. Testicular cancer. Yep. And That's... so, you know, and so uh, basically the, uh, you know, surgeons will remove both testes. And in those situations, we always give testosterone. So the psychological and physiological impacts of testosterone in those situations are almost always profoundly beneficial, assuming we're giving testosterone at physiologic dosages. What does that mean? We're giving back what the body would naturally make. It can be even a little bit lower than that. Like I, like I mentioned before, the, the system is interesting. It, it has the capacity to operate at suboptimal levels. It, it can get most of the way there. But certainly, if we're replacing testosterone in a fashion to a to a, a boy who's 11, 12 years old, had surgery, or sometimes what happens is this isn't discovered until later, so age 17, 18, and all of a sudden, somebody comes in who's really never been to the doctor, and you've got an 18-year-old, chronologically 18-year-old male in front of you who has uh, appears to be 12 or 13, did not go through puberty. Okay, you do the exam, you find the testes are in the inguinal canal, surgery is needed, and then you start testosterone and you put that person through puberty. But in these situations, the impact on bone density, muscle mass, and well-being, in my experience, has always been profoundly beneficial. Older men, for example, just from my clinical experience, who develop hypogonadism, let's say a pituitary tumor, and so they need to have surgery and the pituitary is not stimulating the testes to make testosterone anymore. And so we have to, they're older, they're not going to have kids. And so we give testosterone replacement, their motivation increases, their mood improves, their muscle mass increases, their body fat percentage goes down. So when you take somebody from a testosterone level of zero and you put it to 300, there's a dramatic impact on that person's everything. Oh, that's another question I have. So are, are your gonads the only source of these sex hormones? Like, is it truly zero? Like if you have no gonads, you have, there's nothing else in your body that's. Yeah, that's a great question. So the, yeah, the adrenal glands will make a little bit of sex steroid, but it's negligible. It's, it's not enough for normal physiology. In one of these cases where you have a boy who has had to have their testicles removed and then they're put on, what did you call it? A physiological? Physiologic replacement of testosterone, yes. Physiologic replacement. Is it expected that that person is going to have normal male adult health through their life, even though they're on exogenous hormones? Or is there any sort of known long-term effects of being under a replacement for that sort of injury? The key is physiology. So we know what a normal range of testosterone is. Let's say someone's in the normal range and then something happens where their testes are not making testosterone anymore. Now they have very low testosterone. So that person's risk, for example, of prostate enlargement and probably prostate cancer would go down. It would be lower than now an age 
matched group of other males. And so, yes, if then we then gave that person back testosterone, but to a physiologic range, like the normal range, not above, yeah, their risk of prostate enlargement, perhaps prostate cancer would go up, but it would go back to their normal. It wouldn't be higher than their normal. Do you see what I mean? At least theoretically, yeah. it should not. In those situations, the benefits in terms of physio, you know, the physiological benefits, the psychological benefits of testosterone replacement almost always outweigh the risks in terms of prostate. There are some ex exceptions. So prostate cancer would be one. So in that situation, a quote unquote puberty blocker, right? Same, same drug is given, which chemically castrates that male, that man, and puts the testosterone levels very low. And so essentially you have a chemically induced castration or, you know, you know, yeah. Corinna looks freakishly young. And whenever we bring that up, Corinna says, well, that's from taking exogenous hormones. Is that a thing or is Corinna's freakish youthful appearance genetic? You know, um, that's, it's hard to say. I would say that, so most of the youthful looking people that I run into have parents that have lived a long time and it tends to be, so if someone comes into the office and they're 55 and they look 35 or 40, well, I'll say like, well, whatever you're doing, keep it up. You don't, you look much younger than you are. And how, did your parents live a long time? And almost always the answer is, yeah, my dad lived into his, you know, um, late eighties and my mom lived into her nineties. And then I know there's some, so, so you don't see, you don't see too many young people then is what you're saying. Uh, in my practice. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the first question I would ask is how old are your parents or how long did they live? That would be, and that's a good way to get at the genetics of, uh, okay, this person's telomeres do not decay at the same rate as everybody else's. Um, and so their DNA is not aging as rapidly. Oh, so it's, it's not the estrogen. I have superior telomeres. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It depends. It depends on family history. So if your parents or grandparents lived a long time, that could be some evidence that you have robust telomeres. I want to get a t-shirt that says, <laughs> I'm not young. I have robust telomeres. Yes. Telomeres. Yeah. <laughs> so I also wanted to respond to something you were saying, Will, about gradually increasing doses of mm -hmm. hormones and gradually dropping off. When I was young... I like a teenager, I was prescribed birth control mm -hmm. pills and they just put you on those yep. things and then you stop taking them and you're just off mm -hmm. of them. And this of course has happened to millions of mm -hmm. women. It sounds like a bad idea. So it'd be a, it'd be a very interesting study. So the, you know, the birth control basically just from practicality has to be, um, you know, it's a supra physiologic dose of hormone. It's above Oh, and it, it messed me up physically, by the way. Like, it really screwed yeah. me up. I, like, I gained 25 pounds in yeah. a month, sort of screwed yeah. up. So, yeah, that's not uncommon, which is, you know, there's been a, a push for lower estrogen contraceptives, but even those are supra-physiologic. There's still a higher dose than the ovaries would normally make. 
they have to be, or else it wouldn't be a contraceptive. It would just be hormone replacement. I think you're absolutely right. It's a shock to the system whenever hormone levels rapidly change within days, which is what's going to happen when you start taking oral estrogen. Or if you just stop taking any form of HRT. Yeah. So the half-life, right? So the decay rate of these hormones are known. And so I would have to look up the half-life of estradiol. You could calculate basically the number of half-lives it would take for, for each specific drug to wash out of the system. And within four half-lives, the level, four to five half-lives, you know, the level is going to be essentially to zero. So if you stop taking, if the drug has a Hormones typically have longer half-lives. So for estradiol, it'd be, you know, four or five days and the levels would be to zero if it were 24-hour half-life, depending upon the specific preparation. Okay. I also would like to know what happens if somebody keeps taking high, not crazy high, but like as they age, they take higher levels of exogenous hormones than their body would be producing. Like let's say they're 60 and they're still taking, you know, not a crazy high dose, but they're not decreasing precipitously the way someone naturally would. Would they A, have better bone density or B, get cancer or both? So hormone replacement in women after the age of 50 Um, And especially if given by patch, so estradiol patch and bioidentical prometrium progesterone if needed. So the, the risk of breast cancer, the most recent stuff shows that the risk of breast cancer between the age of 50 and 60 is actually decreased by hormone replacement. And then after the age of 60, the continuous estrogen exposure does start to increase the risk of breast cancer. So kind of the standard teaching now in endocrine practices, and this is likely not true in primary care because after the release of the Women's Health Initiative study in the early 2000s, which basically created a panic about hormone replacement and everyone stopped taking it immediately without any thought, it's really really kind of, it just shows how important uh, contextualizing research results are because, you know, what they showed was that women who started oral estrogen years after menopause had an increased risk of breast cancer and heart disease. But then if you, if you went back and you looked at women who had had hysterectomies and were only taking estrogen and not progesterone, uh, it was, it, it looked like it was the, actually the progesterone that was carrying the increased risk the risk of breast cancer were lower in that population. And so it's taken 20 years now for people to start to realize, oh, we don't have to stop hormone replacement in women, especially if they're having significant symptoms and there's, you know, bone positive effects, et cetera. So, so transdermal estrogen at standard hormone replacement dosages up until the age of 60 is likely very safe for most women if they don't have a history of if there's a family history of breast cancer or blood clots, or certainly a personal history, that decision-making becomes more complicated. But for an uncomplicated history, estrogen replacement with a patch and oral prometrium, bioidentical progesterone, for many women, there's likely more benefit than risk for the first decade after the age of 50. 
after the age of 60, the risk of breast cancer does go up. And the higher the dose of estrogen, the higher the risk. What about men? What about older men? Taking testosterone? Yeah. So the data here is a mess. And so the usual rules apply. I mean, it's just like the whole thing is just crazy. So now we get to apply the usual rules, which is when things are unknown, we are very careful. There has to be a clear indication for testosterone replacement, pituitary damage, testicular damage, and the diagnosis has to be clear. Multiple uh, blood draws over a period of time demonstrating convincing low testosterone. If there are reversible causes, those have to be addressed. Obesity, uncontrolled diabetes, sleep apnea. See a lot, a lot of men who work nights have low testosterone. Night shift is just like horrible for your health. It's just the worst. Wow. So just being out of, out of rhythm with the, with the sun. Um, and so you try to fix all those things. You get those things fixed. You check again. Okay, if the testosterone is still low and there are symptoms, um, then you can consider treatment. You know, you treat with the lowest effective dose. If there is no clear diagnostic cause, and so this happens a lot, there, there are quote-unquote wellness clinics who are not following the rules or best practice where, okay, I'm a man, I, I just want testosterone. I don't feel well. My levels are in the lower range of normal, but I still want testosterone. Okay. So an ethical clinician will not prescribe testosterone in that situation, but uh, it, it happens. And so years later, they'll come into another doctor and they'll say, I see you're on testosterone. Why? Oh, well, I didn't feel well. Was there a reason? No. So now the guidelines recommend that you try to get men off of testosterone, you know, roughly at least once if there's no clear reason for them to be on it. After about five years, you wean it off. It takes a little time. You see if they can re pick up their own production again. I've done this innumerable times in the last 15 years. Somebody comes in, they're on low test, they're on testosterone. There's no clear indication. I question them. They didn't actually really feel better when they started it because they were making enough testosterone to begin with. Uh, maybe their prostate is enlarging now. Their blood might be thicker than normal. Sleep apnea might've gotten worse. Okay. We got to come off of this. We'll wean it down. You're going to feel lousy for a little bit, but we'll go slow. We'll check your levels monthly and many, many times they recover their own production. I have one more question. Sure. So these desisting or disenchanted transsexuals who are trying to find competent endocrinologists and are unable to do so at the gender clinics. Yeah. How do they find a decent endocrinologist? So th they are, they are out there uh, outside of the gender clinics. Um, there's heavy skepticism. Just no one is speaking up because of the political climate. So you can do a couple things. Probably the best way is if you have a good primary care doctor, you ask the primary care doctor to find you somebody to go to. And so, the, and that doctor will start to make calls for you and reach out to colleagues and say, Hey, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a case here. I need some help. Um, here's the situation. Are you, are you comfortable helping out with this? Um, if you cold call doctor's offices, you just don't know what you're going to get. You don't know who you're going to talk to. You're not going to get the doctor on the phone. And so you, you just don't know what their philosophy is and whether they're able to handle this. And so the, the best way is to go through a good primary care doctor. If you can't, 
then you have to cold call and you have to say, this is my situation. I'm looking for a doctor to take on my case. Uh, would you be willing and uh, see if they'll accept you? That sounds like a lot of work. It is. It is. But if you've got a good primary care doc, they'll do that for you. So they'll make those calls. They'll reach through their network and uh, find somebody. You know, the people I trained with are scattered all over the country. And so, you know, I can reach out, reach out to them and say, hey, or I reach out locally and then someone might say no, but they're like, well, I know somebody. And, and so it, it usually happens. You usually can find somebody who's willing to willing to help. You may have heard before that I've been on HRT for about 30 years. Is now the time that I can compete fairly against women? So I've, you know, I've tried to keep myself out of the, the sports and the, and the bathrooms dialogue. I mean, I think it's fairly well accepted that male puberty offers physiologic advantages that might last a lifetime. So in terms of uh, bone structure and lung volumes and diameter of, you know, airways and such. Uh, that are going to allow that physical body to uh, perform with a relative advantage. So I don't know, uh, but uh, that's kind of the general consensus when all of the shouting and yelling and name calling and banner waving stops. That's kind of the, the scientific consensus. Well, I've noticed that as an adult, the times that I've tried to put on a little extra muscle that it doesn't seem to come on very quickly. It requires a lot of effort to do that. Is that all in my head or is that a result of me not producing testosterone? Muscle is fascinating actually. So have you seen these folks who compete in CrossFit? Yes. You know, the, the men and women who compete in CrossFit. So there are women who are very muscular, like they're just, and they're not taking testosterone. They don't have that anabolic steroid look to them, right? So they're, they're just very muscled. And so, so yes, testosterone, the short answer is yes, testosterone is important for muscle building, but so is where your tendons, where our tendons insert into the bones. And so people who are, there are some people who they go to the gym, never worked out in their life. And like six months later, they're just, their muscle development is just ridiculous. And you might, one of their friends might be right there by their side doing all the same work and just all sorts of injuries. And they're, they're, you know, their joints are just messed up doing the same amount of work, if not more, and not putting on muscle. And so one of the factors here is where the tendons insert into your bones. And so if the tendons insert in such a way that it is easier for you to fatigue your muscles with weightlifting, you can generate a stimulus that causes rapid muscle growth. If your tendons are inserted in a more efficient pattern, in a more efficient way, it takes so much work to fatigue your muscles that you start to tear your joints to pieces before you can get the adequate stimulation to grow muscle. And so it seems to be a, a genetic issue of where your tendons insert. And so you can see it like, you know, so if person A's dad is just lean, 
just, you know, he, he's hitting the gym all the time and his kids lean as well, right? In terms of his muscle mass. And then you'll see in other families like, okay, the father or mother is just genetically has more muscle. Um, it might have to do with tendon insertion sites and not so much a hormonal issue. There's a frustration amongst the weightlifting community, right? There are teenage boys, they'll start to hit the gym and some will just respond tremendously and others will be doing a ton of work and eating all the you know protein and, and, the, and the whole thing. And they just don't develop that, that muscle bulk that they want because genetically their tendons are inserted at highly efficient points. And so they can't fatigue their muscles efficiently and they end up with shoulder injuries and they're just killing themselves to put on the muscle that they want and they can't. Those darn efficient tendons. It's all about the, it's the fulcrum. Right. So if you're genetically superior, you have less muscle. Um, that's how I, uh, that's how I'm interpreting yeah, that it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So just like uh, Emily, what's his last name? Emily, the cyclist, the latest one. Is it Bridges? Sure. Yeah. Just like Emily, I ride bikes a lot. Mm -hmm. I rode 109 miles today. Mm, wow. And uh, I do not have big muscular legs. You probably have very so. efficient tendon insertion points. And so it takes... I have superior tendon yes. insertion points. I'm going to tell everyone yeah. that. <laughs> what, a, what a pickup line. While they're busy not admiring my muscles. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so I don't know if you've seen in gyms, sometimes folks will, they'll put like chains on the end of their bench press bar or resistance bands. Have you seen this? No. What's a gym? What's a gym? Yeah, I don't okay. go to a gym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so bands are interesting because so exercise bands, heavy duty exercise bands, the farther you extend them, the more resistance is generated. Right. Mm. And, and this is different than a standard dumbbell where you're putting relatively a lot of resistance in the weakest part of the movement, but not enough in the strongest part. So, you know, for example, you can lift a lot more if your arm is a little bit curled when you start your motion versus if your arm is extended and you try to lift something, it's harder. Okay. Lifting things. Yes. So, <laughs> so I just go like, I have very weak <laughs> upper body, very little upper body strength. And I just well, I chalk that up to being female. <laughs> the end of the, the end of the story is if someone has a hard time building strength and is in muscle and is getting injured a lot with traditional weights, bands might be the way for them to go. Heavy resistance bands because it's less resistance in the weak portion of the exercise and more resistance as you progressively push that band away from your body. And so in the stronger position, you're getting maximum stimulation, which allows you to fatigue the muscle before you destroy your joint. Hmm. And, and that fatigue is what generates the local signals and the growth hormone and the et cetera that tells your muscle, oh no, I need to get bigger to deal with this workload. Very interesting. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we might be getting some bands soon. Yep. Uh, I'll be Googling that after this. Uh, all right. Tennis I, bands. I've, I've, got a, I've got a sad question. So since I have uh, had an orchiectomy and I'm on exogenous hormones, 
Should I expect that even if I have long-lived grandparents or, or parents, should I expect that even if I avoid taking drugs or smoking or doing all the other things that tend to be high risk among uh, my people, not the Jews, the uh, trannies, um, is it likely that being a, a lifetime patient is something that's going to reduce my maximum lifespan? That's an impossible question to answer. So what I, there's studies and data and blah, 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 right? But, and I always tell people this. So the, uh, this question I get a lot with family history and, hey, what do you think about the number of things that I got going on and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, I've got diabetes or I don't, or, you know, my coronary calcium score is this and how long am I going to live and, and, and et cetera. And so, you know, there, there are general trends, but always you can never know with that individual patient or person in front of you what their particular life is going to be like. And so, you know, physicians have seen a, a whole variety of folks with severe heart disease who, are, who live a very long time. They get out of their stressful position, whatever it was, and they get a small farm in the country and they get a bunch of animals and they go for walks and they start to eat right and um, you know, do everything that we know is associated with longevity. And yeah, they live a long time, even though there are some factors that might predict a shorter lifespan. It's interesting as well. You know, mindset is really important. I, so people who come in, who've lived a long time, you know, they're in their nineties and beyond, you know, I ask them, I ask them, I want to know, like, how did you live this? How did you live this long? Right. What, what have you done with your life? What, what do you think has been the most important? And there's not really many surprises. They kind of all answer the same thing. Well, I've, you know, generally taken care of myself and I, and I haven't, I haven't smoked or drank too much alcohol and, and I, I didn't take life too seriously. Oh God, I'm going to live to a hundred. <laughs> so I had, I had a, you know, I had a kind of come as it may attitude about the ups and downs of life. And, and the other kind of common theme that I see is. I wanted to live this long. Hmm. So I expected to live a long time that I, I didn't think of 80 as old. I thought of a hundred or 110 as old. And I, and I expected, I visualized myself as physically active and doing yoga and gardening and, and mobile into my, into my late years. And so wow. I think my mindset has a lot to do with it as well. All right, Corinna, when you're a hundred, you're only going to look like you're 90. Maybe. I, I have a feeling I might look only like I'm 87. Yeah. All right. I only have one last question. And it's sort of, I saved the sort of spicy one for the end because I have to ask an endocrinologist this. No, nobody else can answer this. I, my first endocrinologist, I describe her as being a cross between Dr. Ruth and Dr. Frankenstein. And I was 18 years old. She was putting an 18-year-old boy on, on high doses of estrogen and it started causing breast development. And every time I'd go see her, she was very thorough about checking my breast development. Mm -hmm. Is that something that an endocrinologist would normally do? Be very so, handsy with a patient like that? So the general quote-unquote rule would be you, you only do things that you need to Mm -hmm. Right. So you only invade a, you know, a patient's personal space, whether that be physical exam or with a needle for blood work or 
radiation, whatever it is, if there's a if there's a clear reason, and then that reason should be articulated to the patient out of respect. So it should be the reason that I'm doing this is the following. And here's what I'm checking for. And I know you don't want to get your blood work done this often, or I know it's uncomfortable to have a colonoscopy or, you know, a breast examination, but I'm doing it at, um, because of these reasons. And I pledge to you not to do this more often than is medically necessary. That should be the framework that any physician is, is working under. And so what you're describing seems, unless there was a reason, there was some concern about a side effect, but that should have been articulated to you. So, okay, I'm, it may seem like I'm doing this a lot, but the reason that I'm doing this is because X, Y, Z, and that reason should make sense. Hmm. And then it's not left to question. It's not left to speculation, right? Which is, which who knows? It might've been just, it it might've, there might've been a reason or it might've been not, it might've been, or, or the reason might've not been a kosher one. And and so, um, um, that's, that's how a a conscientious physician when they're invading a patient's personal space with any mechanism, any diagnostic mechanism should be explaining why it's necessary so that there's no ambiguity. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending some time with us answering our, our deepest questions. Nina, did you have any more on your list? Uh, no, actually my questions have been answered. Finally, I am so grateful. All right. Glad to, glad to join you both. Thank you for joining us. Uh, our listeners who might want to know more about your work, uh, what should they do? So, uh, so I'm one of the founders and um, current board member of Collaborative that's working in the gender space. Uh, we're called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. And we're a nonprofit. Our focus is you know, promoting safe, ethical, evidence-based care for gender dysphoric youth. And uh, we have a website, uh, it's scgm.org, uh, where we curate uh, medical evidence and uh, give opinions about new developments and, uh, and such. And so um, uh, for gender stuff, that's probably the best place to go. I have been to the website and I use it as a resource for trying to understand all of the newest research as it comes out. In fact, as I recall, there was a really great summary of the interim cast report a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The cast report. Yep. 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 And, and yeah. yeah. So I appreciate the work that, that, uh, Sagam does. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. William Malone. And thank you, Turfs and Trannies for listening. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.